how Christ is our victor. And I think this text this morning, verses 16 through 33, show us how Christ is our victor. And so if you found your place in verse 16, would you say word? And would you follow along as I read? A little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he's telling us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, are you deliberating together about this that I said? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from the Father. I came forth from the Father. And have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. His disciples said, Lo, now now you're speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, "Do Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. What a tremendous passage. This passage is Wonderful. And and in this text, Christ, we see Christ, our victor, that he has overcome the world, transforming our sorrow into joy. This is the truth about what Christ has accomplished through the resurrection. He's transformed our sorrow into joy. And here's the thing. Jesus has made his Holy Spirit to dwell in Christians and has granted Christians unprecedented access to approach God's throne in Prayer. Now, by Christian, we must define a Christian as one who has surrendered their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, believing upon 
his work that he has done on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, and him becoming the substitutionary atonement for our sin. He satisfied the wrath of God against man's sin that we might have eternal life and forever be in his presence. And so believing in Jesus Christ, that Christ, that one who came down from the Father incarnate, as we sung about earlier, believing in that Jesus Christ, that Son of God, is important for this text. I called Tara one day, and I began the conversation with these words. The first thing you need to know is that everything's okay. (laughs) To which there was just silence. And I, I knew from the silence that she was saying, okay, go on. I'll be the decider as to whether or not everything's okay. And so the next phrase that, come, that came out of my mouth was, we're on our way to the emergency room at Point Capee. Jesse has a hook in his eye, but he's okay. To which there was another brief moment of silence, followed by, are you sure he's okay? And then several clarifying questions to find out if he really was okay. God's providence in the matter would have that when we arrived back at the landing, there was, and I was praying on the way back, but there was, a, uh, there was a, an off-duty paramedic at the landing. And when I asked, I said, hey, does any you guys know where I can find the hospital? And he said, you know, I'm not exactly sure, but I'm a paramedic. What's going on? And I said, praise the Lord, come look at my son's eye. And so he came over and looked, and he said, yeah, you need to go to the hospital uh, and so he said, but I've got some wire clippers, and so I'll spare you all the details. But basically, he, he clipped the end of the hook, uh, the shaft of the hook, and it spun it around. And when he went to touch it, to pull it out, to turn it around back to the way that it needed to be, the hook just came right out. And so we said, praise the Lord, and, and so went to the ER. And so anyway, that, that day progressed, and it, and it went on. But you know, the thing about that story is, no matter what I said to kind of couch the scenario, when I was speaking on the phone to Tara, no matter what I said, I could not control the way that she would react. I could not say enough to dispel any worry or fear that would come up in a mother's heart, right? I mean, you, you, you fill in the blank. You know the fears and the worries that would come up if that was one of your children. And the reality is that sometimes we can't spare the person or the people that we're speaking to from anxiety or from worry or from grief or from sorrow or suffering or pain. These are difficult situations in life. Life happens as we're walking alone. Life happens. And so in this first section from verses 16 through 22, we we see these characteristics in the disciples' life. We see confusion and, and sorrow with death and irrevocable joy. These are all characteristics that we see displayed in in verses 16 through 22. You know, it was similar for the disciples. No matter what Jesus said, the fear of the unknown gripped their hearts. They couldn't move past what they weren't certain of. You know, that may be the case for many of us this morning. We, the fear of the unknown kind of grips our hearts at times and we worry and we have sorrow, unceasing sorrow, we find ourselves in a difficult position in life or circumstances in life and we have great sorrow, unending sorrow or great difficulty and we begin to worry and begin to wonder what really is going on. 
You know, Jesus has been speaking to the disciples from chapter 14, verse 1, where he says, do not let your heart be troubled in this upper room discourse, right? Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And he goes on to speak about the dwelling places that he is preparing for his disciples. Or fast forward into chapter 15, verse 1, where he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. And he invites the disciples to remain in him. And then he says in verse 7 of chapter 15, if you abide in my words and my words abide in you, Listen, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Verse 11. These things I've spoken to you so that your joy may be so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. You see, he's he's telling the disciples these things leading up to his departure because he wants them to be able to trust in him. He doesn't want them to experience sorrow and grief. Instead, he wants them to be able to walk by faith. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Chapter 16, verse 1, we read these things I have spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling, right? He's preparing the disciples in chapter 16, verses 5 through 7. But I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me where you're going, but because I have said these things to you, listen, sorrow has filled your heart. Get the picture of what's going on here. The disciples just can't see past what's coming. They're having trouble trusting in God in the midst of this difficult circumstance in their life. Verse 7, he says, but I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. To which they would say, I don't understand how it's to my advantage that you're going away, Jesus. We've given our lives to follow you. How in the world is this going to be to my advantage? He says, but the helper will come. If I don't go, the helper won't come. But, but if I go, I will send the helper to you. Now, in verses 16 through 18, we catch a glimpse of the confusion that the disciples are walking through. There's questions that are coming up in their mind. Verse 17, what is this thing he's telling us? Right? A a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. What what is this? Verse, Verse 18, what is this that he says? A little while. We don't know what he's talking about. You see, there's confusion on the part of the disciples. They're uncertain about all that Jesus is telling them. Verse 20 tells us that the reality of the circumstance is that it's hard. There are personal struggles that the disciples are walking through. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve or have sorrow but your sorrow will be turned into joy. You know that word sorrow is used five times from verse 6 in chapter 16 through verse 22? Four times in verses 20 through 22. There was great sorrow on part of the disciples. This life circumstance that's coming at them, they were very sorrowful over what was happening his death, Christ's death, that's, that's what verse 16, a little while and you will no longer see me, references. It's the impending or the coming death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection. That's when he says, in a little while you will see me. And so he's speaking about his death and his resurrection. It's an encouraging reminder to me, at least, whenever I read in, in this text, as I see the disciples, they were ordinary people like you and me. There wasn't anything specifically special about these men. They were just very, very ordinary. And yet, God used these very, very ordinary men 
to do extraordinary things for his kingdom. Oftentimes, you know, it's, it's very difficult for us to trace God's hand in the midst of the sorrow. But it's precisely in these difficult times and circumstances that our faith is tested and we must learn to trust in God's sovereign plan. I think about passages like Romans 8.28, right? God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Or uh, Philippians 2.12 and 13, that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, right? Or James chapter 1, verses 2 and 5. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, right? Knowing that the testing of your faith develops endurance. And he goes on to say, let endurance have its perfect result, bringing you to maturity and to completion. And then, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, prayer, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach. And so here's, here's the point. In, 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 in all of this, learning to trust in God's sovereign plan in the midst of sorrow, this, this is what the disciples are having to do in the midst of their sorrow. I think about Job in 13.15. He says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. You know, sorrow and grief is a distressing emotion. And it's brought about into our lives through the presence of sin in the world. Wherever there is sorrow or or suffering or or pain, wherever this happens, there is a reminder to the Christian that our hope is not to be in the things of this world. We are to hope in Christ and to place our hope in the resurrection of Christ and what he has accomplished through his death and resurrection. And so here's what I think we see in this first section. I think we see Jesus telling the disciples and us that Jesus, he, he turns our sorrow into joy. He transforms our sorrow into joy. That is, for the believer, when we're in relationship with Christ, he does this transforming work in our lives where he takes the sorrow in our life and he transforms it into joy. He gives us an example or an illustration in verse 21 of the woman who's in childbirth or in pain. The sorrow or the pain of the woman in childbirth, it's real. But what happens when the child is born? All the mothers with experience, this is your time to speak up. There's joy, right? There's joy that comes in immediately. The anguish and pain that was there, it, it, it's, not, it's not just gone, but this joyful bundle of life has replaced and and. and Come center stage, so now the joy is overshadowing the pain. So she doesn't forget the anguish, but instead the thing which matters most is the birth of the child and the joy that he brings. And, and so here's the thing, Jesus is telling his disciples through their sorrow they will experience joy. And though their sorrow is real and the hour is pregnant with implications for them regarding his death in verse 22, he says, therefore, you too have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice. And listen, no one will take your joy away from you. You see, their sorrow was turned into joy and they, when they saw the Messiah, after his resurrection. 
their sorrow became great joy because Christ had conquered death and he had conquered Satan and he had risen from the grave. And this gave them great joy. And this joy grew exponentially as he ascended to the Father and he sent down his Holy Spirit to reside within the life of the disciples and you and me. And so it's because of the cross of Christ and his resurrection today that we too can have joy. Hear what Peter said in his epistle to the church, 1 Peter 1.8. And though you have not seen him, the disciples are going to see him in a little while, but he says to those who haven't, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. The joy that comes from knowing Christ is an imperishable joy. The joy that we have as we walk with Christ is also irrevocable. No one can take it away. The circumstances of Christ on the cross might have brought momentary sorrow, but joy was coming near for them. It was coming momentarily for them, and it had arrived for them. The question this morning is, do you, do I, do we, Know the joy that comes from being united with Christ in his resurrection. This is what he's pointing us to see. Joy in Christ, joy, the joy-filled life comes when we are connected, remaining in the vine. You see chapter 15, this metaphor of the vine, it's not, we don't do away with it. We, We must remain in the vine. And as we remain in the vine, we have joy. Unending joy, irrevocable joy. Are the circumstances of your life this morning causing your faith to struggle? Do you need to be reminded that though sorrow is here for a time, there is joy that is near? Trust in the Lord. See the big picture of God at work in the midst of our lives. The second thing I want us to see this morning is prayer fuels everything. Prayer fuels everything. In verses 23 through 28, we see this truth fleshed out. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Let us not forget that when he says here, in that day, Jesus is referencing the day of his resurrection and subsequently the ascension that he goes to the Father and then sends down the Holy Spirit into the life of the disciples and into the church. And so it means that the disciples are about to enter a new era of redemptive history, an era that is ruled by the Holy Spirit. And for you and I, this is significant because we live in this time now where the Holy Spirit is in the midst of the church and in the midst of his people. And we're not left alone to navigate this life on our own. No, God has given us the deposit of his spirit to lead us and and to guide us. And so the first thing I want us to see is this in, in prayer, that prayer gives insight into the work of the Father in the world. It's important for us to see. Because don't forget, he's he's already talked about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the disciples. Verse 23 really seems to answer the question the question of confusion that's brought up in verses 16 through 18 for the disciples. 
Particularly when he says in verse 23, Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you, and you will not question me about anything. What will you do? You will go straight to the Father, he says. Verse 26, I will no longer speak to you in a figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. You see, this is the mark of redemptive history. Brothers and sisters, we have been brought into the knowledge of God. We have been given God's word, and he has declared to us that which we as a church are to be about, which we as as disciples of Christ are to be about. The Father, through the Son, has made divine disclosure to his creation. Think about John 1.18. Early on in the study of John, we saw that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. Listen, that's Jesus. He has explained him. He has revealed him to us and told us about the Father. And Jesus has made the Father known to us. And even in calling us friends, we saw in chapter 15, verses 14 through 16, we've been given this privileged knowledge as friends who have been brought in on this counsel of what God is doing in the midst of the world. Go back and read verses 14 through 16 of chapter 15. No longer are we slaves who don't know what the master is doing. You see, the work of God in Christ and the church is, is redemption of the world through Christ's substitutionary atonement. He has redeemed our lives. And, get this, he is still at work redeeming the lives of many in the world, of many in the workplace, of many in our social networks and in our groups. He is still at work bringing redemption into the lives of people so this means for you and I, the church today, it means that we know the Father's will. We know His desires in accomplishing His mission. We know that we're called to be change agents in the world. We're, we are called to be His ambassadors, right? We're called to be light in the midst of darkness and to be salt of the earth that give this distinctly radical flavor to all that we come in contact with We're called to be good stewards in the relationships that God has given us for His glory. We're called to be disciples, making disciples who make disciples, right? This is the calling of God in our lives. This is God's will and God's work through His Holy Spirit by the mediating work of Christ, going before the Father, becoming the substitute, satisfying His wrath so that we might have eternal Life. And this is the message that we bring to the world. By prayer, we gain insight into God's work in the world. Do you see that? We gain insight into what God is doing because we're coming to him in prayer. But prayer must be also in the name of Jesus Christ. Verses 23 and 24 and 26. Do you see what he says there? He says... In my name, you may ask the Father for anything in my name. And again in verse 24, until now you've not asked for anything in my name. And then he gives a command, ask and you will receive. And then verse 26, in that day you will ask in my name. Now does this mean that we approach God with some formula in our prayer that we say at the end of every prayer in Jesus' name and that means we've carried out the commandment of this text? No, that's that's not it. I would say that 
closing your prayer in the name of Jesus Christ or in Jesus' name, it's a, it's a good thing. And I think that helps properly, it put in the proper perspective, I think it helps us as we come to God in prayer that we remember that we are praying in the name of Jesus. But the point isn't that we just introduce some formula into our prayer and then all of a sudden we are now brought into the presence of God. No, that is not what Jesus is saying here. H.B. Sweda English theologian in the late 1800s and early 1900s said this about prayer. The name of Christ is both the passport by which the disciples may claim access into the audience chamber of God and the medium through which the divine answer comes. You see that? The name of Christ becomes the passport of the Christian life by which we come into God's presence. If you were out of the country and you lost your passport and you tried to come back into the country... You think you'd be able to get in? It, it would be hard work, right? I mean, it takes some effort to get back in. Here's the point. As disciples of Christ, we come to him, we come to God through the blood of Christ, through the power of Christ, through his reconciling work on the cross. And so cross. And so prayer must be in the name of Christ. So the question then is, why do we pray in Jesus' name Why do we pray in Jesus' name, in the name of Christ? I think a few reasons. One is because, well, Christ commanded it. He commands us to pray in his name. But secondly, think about this. It shows our submission to Christ. When I come praying in the name of Christ, I am submitting myself to the one who has authority above all. And saying, Father, I come to you in the name, humbly, in the name of Christ and in his authority. And it reflects our trust and our belief in his work on the cross and his resurrection. It says that we believe this is the work that Christ has accomplished for our salvation. It reveals our dependency on him as, as the mediator of a new covenant. Now we can come to God in prayer because Christ himself has mediated a covenant between us and the Father. He has satisfied God's wrath against sin. And we come to him in Jesus' name because his name is powerful. As authority, it's powerful. His name is above every name. His name is the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so when we pray in Jesus' name, we mean to pray as not the formula, but the foundation. We come to God not with some formula, but with this foundation that Jesus Christ has saved us and we are under his authority submitted to him. And get this, Jesus is saying, listen, listen in verse 24. If you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. That's 23. Verse 24, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive. Why? So that your joy may be made full. Verse 26, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. Verse 27, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I can. You go straight to the Father, he says, and you ask in my name. And here's the thing, we are guaranteed access to the throne room of God because we're praying in accordance with God's will. 
we're seeking and aligning ourselves with the express purpose and work of God in and through our lives. This is what happens when we are truly praying in Jesus' name. And so in this process of prayer, we're praising and we're confessing and we're, we're, we're giving thanks and, and we're interceding on behalf of others. We do this all with the understanding that we are seeking that which God desires for our lives because we know that what God desires in our lives is the best for our lives. And so ask and you will receive. We are assured, get this believer, you are assured that when you come to the Father in prayer, that you have the ear of God bended, listening to your request and to your supplication and to your confession and to your praise. As we have modeled this morning, God takes great delight and joy in the prayer and the praising of his people. And so in that day, he says, you'll ask in my name, and he talks about not requesting of the Father. And the point is that, that we are now able to go right into the presence of God, into that throne room of God, and speak to God personally. And as we do that, the Lord Jesus and the Father simultaneously hear the prayers of the saints and receive the prayers of the saints. Now, this doesn't discount the work of Christ's mediation that we see in 1 John chapter 2. But this is specifically Jesus telling us that now we come into the Father and it is the Father expressly who has loved His children. You see, the Father needs no prompting. That's what verse 27 is about. The Father Himself loves you. He loves every one of us. I remind you of that familiar verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world, it was God's love for the world that He gave His only Son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so through prayer, we come into the presence of the Father, asking in Jesus' name so that we can know and accomplish the work of God. Remember John 14, 12? Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father You see, Jesus has made his Holy Spirit to dwell in Christians. And he's granted Christians an unprecedented access into the throne room of God. And so here's what I'll challenge us with. Take courage. Number three this morning, take courage. Christ has overcome the world. We need to see this this morning. As the disciples were in the midst of sorrow, even as perhaps we might be, or will go through times of sorrow and struggle Get this, take courage, Christ has overcome the world. You know, there are many ups and downs in in life. There are ups and downs in discipleship as we walk this life and navigate each step along the way. Some days we wake up and we feel great about the day and we almost feel like we're walking on a cloud, right? Then emotionally, the next day we might wake up and feel like we got hit by a truck, And and we just just feel like, man, we're down in the pits. And so life is full of mountaintops and valleys, Jesus knew this, but he knew this, he knew this well because he came and he became incarnate. He walked in the flesh. He knew the temptation for the emotions 
And I, I just want us to hear this this morning. You know, I, Christ identified with us. These disciples walking through sorrow. It's difficult. These are tough days. I, I remember the song, One Step Forward, Take Two Steps Back. I, I don't remember the title, but you guys remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, there's the opposites attract one. I learned that there's one by the Desert Rose Band. I, you know what I learned when I typed that into Google? Go try it sometime. I, I think we would be safe to say that everybody in here, if you've lived through the 80s, the 90s, uh, or the 2000s, even up until modern day, that that is a lyric that continually finds its way into songs over and over and over again. You know why? Because it's so true to life. Sometimes we feel like we've taken one step forward and then we take two steps back. And, and in verses 29 through 31, that's what happens with the disciples. They say, now, now you're speaking plainly. They tell him, Jesus, now, now we understand what you're saying. You're speaking plainly. And then he tells them in verse 31, do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming when you're going to scatter. You'll leave me. You'll be unfaithful. You'll walk away. But I'm not alone because the Father's with me. So take comfort, believer. Father's always with us, even when, we, even when we tend to walk away. And so he says, the Father is with me. And then in verse 33, these things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. Get this. This in me, it's the language of, of the vine, right? In Christ we have peace. In him. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. He tells the disciples, expect it, tribulation's coming. But in me you will have peace. And know this, that in the midst of your tribulation, I have overcome the world. So, so hear this, disciple. Take courage. When you think of courage, what do you think of? In the face of danger, you think some... Somebody coming in and rescuing somebody who's in peril, right? When I think about courage in the biblical sense of what Christ is saying here, I think about Stephen in Acts chapter 7, who was able to stand in the midst of a group of people who had stones and they were ready to stone him to death. And he was willing to proclaim the gospel and trust in God in the midst of tribulation. Or think about when, the, when Saul became Paul on the road to Damascus, and there was, there was this one ordinary guy. His name was Ananias. And the Lord says to Ananias, Ananias, go to my servant Saul. <laughs> and Ananias is he's like the persecutor? The one that's putting everybody in prison and killing people? The one that just stoned Stephen? Held the coats for people? That, that Saul? That's all. I think about courage in the biblical sense and what Christ has called us to. I, I think about those guys. Those are, that's what we want to aspire to. Phoebe, the leader of the house church that met in her home, the servant of God. We think about these kind of servants through Scripture, and, and those are the ones that Christ is talking about when he says, take courage. This is what he means for us to take courage in the midst of tribulation, Christian. Take courage. Know that Christ has overcome the world. He has defeated Satan and death and put every demon of hell on the run. He has secured 
our eternal hope. And he has made a way for us to come into the presence of the Father. And that is a glorious thing. That is the thing that brings us eternal joy. So I want to challenge you this morning. If that's where you are, praise the Lord. If that's where you need to be, praise the Lord. Repent and ask him to give you that courage and that strength. Christ, our victor, has overcome the world, transforming our sorrow into joy. He has given us an eternal joy, even in a temporal world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you, Lord, for your grace toward us, and we ask that you would strengthen us to respond to your calling. Thank you, God, that we can come into your presence unhindered. Oh, God, what a glorious reality that you have given us by your spirit. And so, Lord, strengthen us today to walk with you and to follow you and to to be guided in, in all of our ways as we depend upon you. And so, Lord, strengthen us to live for your glory and to experience your joy and to share that with others. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?